You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Rob Webster. I'm an Associate Professor here at the IOE. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Sam Sims. Sam is a research fellow in the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities at the IOE. He is also a researcher at Education Data Lab. Sam is an authority on the recruitment and retention of teachers. And along with Professor Rebecca Allen, he's the author of a book on this topic called The Teacher Gap. Now, the issue of teacher supply has been at the top of the policymaking agenda for several years, and that's unlikely to change as schools adjust to life after the present coronavirus pandemic. So how will the teacher gap be affected in the aftermath of the pandemic? Let's find out. Sam, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Sam, before we leap into all of that, uh, you're part of a brand new research centre at the IOE, the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities. Can you start by telling us about the centre and how you came to be part of it? Sure, yeah. So CPO, as we call it, like the Star Wars robot, (laughs) is uh, a group of researchers who are interested in using social science to answer really policy-relevant questions related to educational inequalities. We're lucky to have members of staff in the centre from a range of backgrounds, so some from economics, some from public policy, and also kind of psychology and child development. And between us, we try to cover every stage of the life course and kind of phase of education. So right through from early years into education uh, and different kind of routes through education, right through into the labour market and the world of work. And we kind of do this in three ways, which is perhaps something that makes us a bit distinctive. Where there are questions that we just don't have good evidence or data on, we're trying hard to develop new ways of collecting and analysing that data. So, for example, I have a project uh, developing and validating a questionnaire that's intended to measure the quality of teachers' working environment within schools, which is something we just don't have good ways of capturing at the moment. Where there is good data already, for example, uh, kind of big administrative data sets or rich surveys, we'll analyse this secondary data to try and understand some of the dynamics of these problems that we're looking at. So, for example, the director of the Centre, Lindsay McMillan, just published a paper looking at the relationship between academic selection in secondary schools, for example, uh, you know, we call them grammar schools in this country, and inequalities in earnings across areas in England. So trying to link the two phenomena. And then where there is quite good evidence, uh, more developed evidence about uh, what works in solving some of these problems around equity, we aim to develop kind of interventions and then evaluate them And so, for example, Jake Anders from the centre has recently been involved in a trial, a randomised controlled trial, looking at the effects of formative assessment on pupil achievement. So we try to go cross-disciplinary across the life course and right through from kind of basic data collection to trialling solutions to some of these problems. And what was your journey into the centre, Sam? Mm, So I've I've always been uh, interested in the social world. 
And when I was, I, I was one of these people who did the much maligned politics, philosophy and economics degree. And as part of that, I did one module on social policy and within that one week on education policy. And this was sort of the first time that I came into contact with some of the academic literature on the sociology of education, for example. And so I remember reading papers by Sharon Gewertz about school choice. And I think I remember actually writing my assignment for that week, arguing that Sharon Gewertz had got school choice all wrong and didn't understand how this would be related to outcomes for pupils. Uh, since then, I have done more than three days of reading on it and revised my views on that slightly. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was completely hooked on education policy. And I kind of left university, probably like most 21-year-olds, not really knowing what I was going to do to make a living and uh, fell into work in a think tank where I was reading papers by people like Becky Allen, Simon Burgess, Lorraine Dearden, and, uh, you know, quantitative research on policy relevant issues in education. I thought, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. So in back in 2013, I think, I signed up for a master's initially in policy evaluation and MSc, and I've just never left. <laughs> so the centre was set up a couple of years ago, around about the time I was finishing my PhD, which focused on some of these issues around the teacher workforce, and it seemed like the ideal place for me to be working, so I applied and thankfully got the job. Excellent. Well, it's a great to still be retaining your expertise and services, Sam. Much of your research is on the recruitment and retention of teachers, and that's about ensuring we have the right number of teachers in the right subjects, in the right places. And that's been a persistent problem for policymakers and schools alike. So could you tell us, first of all, where the shortfalls are. What subjects and which areas of the country do we see the, the greatest shortfalls with teacher numbers? Yeah, so it's easier to talk about subjects than it is about regions. And when it comes to subjects, the shortages are, well, first of all, the shortages are primarily in secondary. So we can talk about, you know, specific subject teachers. Within that, they are concentrated within science and maths, and particularly within science, really, in physics, and also MFL, modern foreign languages, French, German, Spanish, and so on. When it comes to regions, it's a bit harder to say, because the way that we tend to get a handle on shortages is through the government's teacher supply model, which is a kind of huge, many, many page spreadsheet with a kind of econometric model at the heart of it, which calculates these things on a national level. Having said that, it seems that areas with fewer outside employment opportunities, that is outside of teaching, tend to have slightly less severe shortages. And some of these kind of basic facts about the nature of the shortage point towards some of the potential explanations for it. For example, those with undergraduate qualifications in maths or physics can generally command um, quite high pay in the labour market. And similarly, the fact that shortages don't seem to be as bad in areas with fewer employment opportunities outside teaching suggests that this is partly about, you know, a kind of classic economics issue of supply and demand between the skills that the teachers have particularly in post-secondary education, post-compulsory education, and uh, the local labour market, other jobs available. Let's talk about the challenges of recruitment and retention, which you explore in your book, The Teacher Gap. We'll talk about the gap itself in a moment. But first of all, 
Can you tell us why we struggle with this? Why is it so hard for us to get teachers and then to hold on to them? Mm. So for this, we can go way back to the middle of the 20th century, when teaching was a very female dominant profession. And it was one of the few, culturally, it was one of the few occupations that was seen as acceptable or approved for middle class women to go into, usually prior to starting a family. Although, of course, this has changed kind of cumulatively over time or gradually over time. As employment opportunities for women have opened up in other areas of the economy, which is, of course, a very good thing, we haven't been able to just rely on this kind of almost you know, monopoly provider of educated women. At the same time, and you can see this in the patterns across countries, as a country becomes more economically developed, as we have done over the long run, you know, in the UK, the number of alternative employment opportunities in highly paid private sector jobs tends to increase. So for example, if we think back to our our maths and physics graduates, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there were far fewer jobs for them in, for example, investment banking, or perhaps a a better example for 2020 is, you know, in the tech sector. So you couldn't become go and become an iOS developer with your maths degree in the 1990s, for example. And so this opening up of alternative opportunities for people with STEM degrees and women in general has made it harder to hang on to, or, or rather to persuade Uh, people with the relevant qualifications to go into teaching. There's also a sort of cyclical element to this in that, you know, we have demographic cycles, you know, we have baby booms at certain times. We've just had a baby boom that's worked its way through the primary phase in England. So, you know, the kids from that baby boom are now kind of early teens. That creates fluctuations in the need for teachers at certain age groups. Uh, And so, baby booms are recurring and therefore these kind of increases in the need for teachers at certain phases is also a recurring issue. It's also doubly cyclical in that the economic cycle, you know, whether we're currently in recession or not, and we are just about to enter a very large recession, has an impact on, again, these alternative employment opportunities that are available to graduates. So, for example, after the, uh, you know, in 2007-8, when the financial crisis started the last one, you saw a sort of short term, but very marked spike in the number of graduates going into initial teacher training. So all of this adds up to this kind of long run and recurring difficulty in ensuring that our schools have enough teachers. Training to be a teacher holds up quite well in times of economic hardship. So there is something about it being as a profession, something that's seen as being quite stable, but, uh, but then as we've been, as you've been saying, people come and they go from uh, the profession. So there's a seems like there's a, a little tension there. Yes, uh, and this is partly to do with the way that relative wages inside and outside teaching change over time. So, for example, when a recession first hits, public sector pay tends to hold up in part because the government is keen not to start kind of withdrawing demand from the economy by just cut, immediately cutting everybody, you know, public employees' wages. In the private sector, however, employment opportunities quickly disappear and real terms pay starts to fall because there's a glut of graduates looking for work and employers just don't have to pay so much. 
That changes, and, and again, we can use the most recent recession as a really good example here. By sort of 2011, 2012, you're starting to see a recovery in the private sector employment of graduates and the real pay of graduates outside teaching starts to accelerate again. Whereas at that point, the government's looking at, you know, and particularly the coalition government at the time is looking at its balance sheet and thinking, you know, we need to start cutting spending quite aggressively now. And so you then see public sector pay constraint really quite severe. And so there's this kind of lagged effect where then teaching wages start falling behind those in the private sector. And we've essentially seen, uh, you know, the best part of a decade of that process. I think real terms pay for teachers has risen more slowly than private sector pay for nine out of the last 10 years from memory. And so that then undermines the competitiveness of teaching in terms of pay. So let's talk about the teacher gap, um, as you've explained in your book with with Becky Allen. Now, you, you talk about this as being a threefold issue. So there are kind of three gaps. There's, there's one about what we know about the importance of teachers and, and how we treat them. There is something as well about the numbers, as you've been saying, the difference between the number of teachers we have and the numbers that we need. And then the, th- the third one, difference between the quality of teachers we have and the quality of teachers that we want. So let's just uh, interrogate each of those in turn. And we'll start with how teachers are valued. So what do we know about the importance of treating teachers right? Is this more than just about paying them well? Absolutely, yeah. So far, I've uh, really majored on the issue of pay, because I think in the long run and cyclically, that's important. Once somebody is chosen to become a teacher, the lived reality, your day-to-day experience of what the job is like is obviously extremely important. And one of the reasons I chose to do my PhD research on the supply of teachers is because I left university, you know, with a big peer group. Many of them went into teaching for a whole range of reasons, but foremost amongst those was the idea of making a contribution, helping pupils learn. And I was at the same time kind of reading this research about the importance of teachers, which has mainly been doing in the US, which was kind of cohering around this consensus that teacher quality is one of the most important kind of school level at determinants of how good an education a pupil gets. Going back to my friends who had all gone into teaching at the same time, I was kind of watching them becoming disillusioned with the job of teaching and the teaching profession and many of them leaving. So this seemed to me to be a total paradox. How could everybody be agreeing that teachers are super important for pupils? But at the same time, we seem to be kind of alienating teachers and driving so many of them out of the profession. So that's the first sense in which we talk about the teacher gap in our book, the importance of teachers and the way in which we treat them. So is there a, for any teachers listening to this, they might be surprised that we haven't yet mentioned the word workload, but is there is there something, well, there is something about this. Is this is, we understand as being one of the things which is a bigger problem of retention than recruitment, that teachers are quite overloaded and that that has a, a slow burn effect on how long they stay in the post. Yes, this is kind of the dominant argument, I would say, about why we've been uh, struggling to hang on to teachers. The term workload is requires a bit of unpacking. It could mean many things, and I think it does mean different things to different people. Some of the early evidence pointing to workload as an issue came from surveys of teachers in England. 
where it was found that uh, the average number of hours worked per week by teachers was higher than their international counterparts. That finding is very clear, but also that it had been going up. Finding that it had been going up came from government-run surveys, which actually had a very low response rate, and I think were probably not very representative. And more recent research, including some research that I've been involved in with John Jerram and others, we've looked at very long time series of representative data on teachers and found that, yes, teachers' workload is high, that is clear. The average teacher works around about 50 hours per week, and that's about one full working day longer than the rich world average. But interestingly, over 20 years, we find that, you know, twas ever thus, essentially. It seems that teachers have always worked long hours. So it seems hard to use, you know, the total number of hours teachers work as an explanation for declining retention in the profession. And I mentioned earlier on that I'm trying to develop a questionnaire which measures the quality of teachers' working environment. And based on some of these findings which suggest that it can't be just the total number of hours, I've kind of gone back to the psychology literature and uh, read around on, you know, what is it about workload or job design which ends up demotivating uh, staff and uh, leading people to leave their jobs across professions. And one of the dominant sort of frameworks in psychology, which we also talk about in the book, is the job demands resource model, which is a very simple two-part framework, which just says, you know, you on the one hand, on the one side of the ledger, you have these demands, which are uh, crucially hindrance demands. So these are things which prevent people doing their job or make their life harder while doing their job. Notice that hours doesn't fit this definition. On the other hand, you've got resources, which is all the things that help you function at work and help you do the things you want to do. Uh, And the model just predicts that where these two things are kind of misaligned or one dominates the other, or actually where, where the demands dominate the support, this leads people to become burned out and withdraw from their work and look for other forms of work. And so I've incorporated some of this in the questionnaire that I've been developing by including questions such as, you know, rather than asking how many hours a week do you spend marking, which the data suggests has been broadly stable over the last five years, we are we include questionnaire items such as agree or disagree, teaching, uh, sorry, marking gets in the way of teaching. It's trying to tap this idea of a hindrance demand. And we find actually that when you measure workload in this way, it's more of a sort of qualitative psychological uh, way of thinking about workload. It's much more strongly predictive of teachers' intention to stay in the profession than just hours or hours spent on specific tasks. That's really interesting. So it's not necessarily a question of volume. It's a question of what it is you're being asked to do, whether or not you think it has any value and, and whether or not it's, it's getting in the way of the thing you, you really want to do, which is maybe spend more time in front of children and helping their learning rather filling out endless spreadsheets or something that uh, of which you can't quite see the point, but it's just ticking a box for somebody else. Yes. So teacher tap have a question they ask. This is the pollster teacher tap where they ask their very large panel of teachers, to what extent do you agree that a large part of, hopefully I'm not mangling the wording here too much, but a large part of what we do in this school is intended solely for the benefit of outsiders. So, for example, parents, inspectors, and so on. And this is things like filling out the pointless spreadsheets or, you know, writing documents to satisfy 
uh, school inspectors and so on. And I can't remember the specific figure, but it's depressingly high. It is coming down because they've repeated this question over multiple years. But it does seem to be this kind of you know, red tape is what we would call it outside of teaching that really demotivates teachers. And, you know, I'm not surprised. We'll talk about the the number of teachers and it's the kind of second gap that you described. The number of teachers that we have are the ones we need. And you've mentioned this already. This is connected to changes in the pupil population. And we've had a recent bulge in the primary school population, which is finding its way now into the secondary schools. So can you tell us a bit about how that is affecting secondary schools? Is there a serious gap between the number of teachers that we have in secondary schools and the number we're going to need? as that bulge moves through yeah there is and the pupil population at secondary doesn't start falling until 2025 this is obviously quite easy to predict because you know you just watch the bulge moving through the through the sort of pyramid of the demographic pyramid it's hard to say exactly how many teachers we are short and it's even harder to say it now that we are in a COVID-19 world because uh, previously all of this modeling was based on you know, assumptions about uh, class sizes and so on. But given that we're now in a world where we've got these so-called bubbles of pupils, although it's not quite clear how that's going to work at secondary level, in any case, classes are going to have to be much smaller because to maintain two metres social distancing, it appears that the most pupils you can fit in a normal classroom is about 12 at once. The other reason it's hard to say what is the shortage now is that a whole proportion of the entire teaching workforce, no matter what schools do to put in place safety measures, are just not going to be able to return to the classroom until we have immunity to COVID-19 because they either are you know, in a very vulnerable category themselves, or they live with somebody else who's very vulnerable, and so they can't risk contracting the virus and then bringing it back into the home. And we do have some survey data on this. So NFER and TeacherTap again have both surveyed teachers on this. And it seems like somewhere around one third of teachers are now only available to work from home until we have immunity via one route or another. Now, those teachers can, of course, still contribute, but it all has to be remotely. And it may be the case that we're now moving to a kind of parallel education system in which we have pupils who are not themselves vulnerable or who don't live with anybody vulnerable who are able to go into school being taught by teachers themselves who are not vulnerable. And then a kind of parallel world in which we have the teachers who are unable to come into school for health reasons who will presumably be working with the pupils that can't come in. So that all of the parameters here have changed and it's, that makes it very hard to know what the current situation is in terms of sufficiency of the teaching workforce. And do you have any data on what's happening in in special schools? Do we do we know if there's a issue of undersupply there, even with, without the effects of COVID? There's actually been very little research on this in the UK context. There's been a lot more research on it in the US context, where special educational needs teachers are kind of the fourth shortage alongside math, science and MFL. So I wouldn't be surprised if the situation is similar in England and in the UK. 
a third part of the gap, quality of teachers that we have uh, versus the quality of teachers that we want or quality of teachers that we need. Now, as with other the, the other areas of teacher supply, it's often thought of as being a, a policy issue that might be kind of somewhat out of the hands of schools themselves. But I wondered with this with this particular issue, if, if this is something that's, that might be a bit more in the control of schools, at least in part, if we're talking about improving the quality of teaching, is this, is this something that schools have some control over? And is there any evidence of how schools work to improve the quality of their teachers through training and so on? I think it's worth starting by just illustrating the importance of teacher quality for pupil outcomes. So if we take an example pupil, uh, we can just call her Sally, perhaps, and we think about the maths teachers, just again for the sake of argument, that Sally's exposed to in her five years at secondary school. So she's probably going to have five teachers, one in each of those years. And, you know, those teachers will quite naturally enough vary in how uh, effective they are at helping Sally learn maths. Now, let's pick 100 pupils at random from across the country in Sally's year group, 100 of Sally's peers, and then arrange those in order of how lucky they've been in terms of the quality of maths teachers they encountered during their secondary career. So you can imagine from the left, those that have had uh, the least effective teachers arrayed onto the right, those that have had the most effective combination of five teachers across their secondary school career. And so we know from a great deal of research that if Sally experiences similar quality maths teachers to the 16th luckiest out of those 100 of her peers, we would expect her to move from being average at maths, you know, 50% of the 50% of the way along the ability distribution to moving up to being better at maths than 62% of her fellow pupils. If Sally's really lucky and experiences similar quality teachers to the second luckiest pupil out of those 100 of her peers, then we'd expect her to end up being better at maths than 74% of her fellow pupils. So up from 50% to 74%. So this really can have a transformative impact on how much pupils learn at school. So the second part of your question was on, okay, this begs the obvious question, what can uh, schools do about this? And there's, there's a few things we know about how teachers get good at their job. And really, I'm talking about here from a sort of school or policy perspective, how teachers get good at their job. The first is that the quality of a teacher's peers really matters for how good they get at the job. So it seems like there's this process by which expertise kind of rubs off from teachers onto their colleagues. And so ways that schools can think about this, you know, practical things we can do with this insight is, for example, placing new teachers. If you're in a primary school, if you've got a new teacher who's learning the ropes, and perhaps it's a two-formentary primary school, you can place that new teacher with one of your best existing teachers in the school so that the new teacher can learn from the kind of experienced, skilled teacher that you already have. Another insight we have from the literature uh, is around the importance of working environment. And this is why I'm one of the reasons I'm interested in this subject. And by working environment, we think we mean things like the quality and extent of collaboration in a school, the supportiveness of school leaders and so on. And you can measure this stuff. It's hard to measure. But amazingly, once you do measure it, it's actually been shown that 
in schools with higher quality working environments, teachers' own learning curve, the extent of which the, or the speed with which they acquire teaching skills is steeper. That is, they learn faster. Now, it's hard to give specific concrete advice about how to improve that, but I am hoping to run a project soon with the questionnaire I've developed helping head teachers to essentially self-assess on the quality of working environment in their school and perhaps identify areas for improvement. And very briefly, the last thing we know, and I think this is one of the most exciting developments in the literature, is the importance of a certain type of professional development called instructional coaching. And this is uh, a one-to-one model of professional development where you have one expert coach working with one coachee, the teacher, and they work in an individualized, so they're working on things which are specific to, you know, that the teacher's looking to develop, observation feedback practice cycle. So the coach will observe the coachee, they'll give them feedback on it, the coachee will then practice it, and then they'll do that again. So they'll stick with the same, often very micro skill. And we know from an enormous amount of research, including experimental research, that this has a strong relationship with teacher effectiveness, teacher skill. It strikes me that what you're talking about there is also would be quite welcome in the current context, even notwithstanding what we're experiencing with the pandemic, is if you can give teachers a specific skill to, to sort of isolate and work on, it makes it manageable and achievable. And be one of the things that we, as you've been explaining, well, perhaps intimating is there can be for some teachers a bit of an overwhelming effect of having to do all, you know, everything under the sun and often one of the first things that goes in that situation is your own professional development so if that can be bought in and made manageable then that strikes me as being quite a useful part of our retention toolkit yeah when i think when it comes to professional development slowing down or focusing in is a way of speeding up one thing at a time is far more useful than kind of you know broad sweep of professional development or you know six seminars on whatever it might be feedback for example much better to just isolate specific skills and focus on those as someone who's done a bit of teacher training the kind of twilight session is always a tough gig because after a hard days in the classroom and then going to talk with teachers it can be a bit of a, a mixed bag you do get people who would rather be doing the marking or and rather than listening to you or maybe listening to me but if it's if it's something specific to their practice it's, you've got them haven't you it's something that is unique to you something that uh, you can work on and get better at and people really do buy in when they when it's kind of bespoke and when they can see some results. Yeah, I think that's right. It combines kind of individualization of, you know, let's work on something that's important to you with a kind of almost individual level accountability. So you know you're going to be coming back to do the next observation feedback practice cycle. These instructional coaching models often involve teachers actually videotaping themselves or filming themselves. And so there is that very direct accountability for taking the next step in this professional development. I mean, there are reasons why schools rely, sensible reasons or understandable reasons why schools rely on the kind of twilight batch CPD model, which is that it is much, much cheaper than instructional coaching. And it also, you know, you can buy in the resources from outside, you can perhaps get a speaker, or you can focus on something that's, you know, of particular priority to the leadership at the moment. But there are now several examples of schools in England that have developed 
a zero cash cost instructional coaching model where they've essentially just reassigned some of their best teachers, uh, you know, away from other responsibilities to work on instructional coaching so that it's kind of completely embedded into the functioning of the school. And that takes time. But, you know, schools do have time. When you think about all the many kind of fads that come and go in education, things that we used to think were important, like filling out these enormous spreadsheets of pupil progress data, you know, just imagine if we reallocated that time to some of these effective professional development models, it wouldn't cost any money, it wouldn't have to come out of the school budget, but it just involves using the resources we already have more effectively. I suppose as we think about some of these things in the context of the pandemic or life after the pandemic as we begin to adjust, that something like this as well could be done remotely as well. We're all kind of adjusting to perhaps doing things through Zoom or Skype or other. And maybe there is some of these techniques could be delivered through those means as well. So again, that sort of makes it a little bit more uh, achievable. Yes, well, maybe maybe the need to maintain social distancing will be the death of the one-size-fits-all twilight on the grounds that, you know, it's not even safe to do that anymore. There is actually evidence to support this. So there have been a couple of evaluations of instructional coaching programmes that are either partly or fully remote, mediated by you know, sending videos across the internet, essentially. And they appear to be comparably effective to those that involve in-person coaching. I mean, there is a sort of issue of just establishing the relationship and the trust between the coach and the coachee to begin with, I think, that makes you know, being able to look this person in the eye and perhaps shake their hand in a world after COVID valuable. But yeah, I think there's something in what you're saying. Yes, of course. I'm being a little bit harsh on inset uh, or, t- or twilight inset there. I don't really mean it, but you know, obviously other models of CPD are available. <laughs> in in terms of recruitment, then let's stick with this issue of you know life after COVID or managing life with it. In terms of recruitment, we've been reading this week that the charity Now Teach, which is an organisation that helps people retrain the secondary school teachers, have been reporting a 70% increase in applications over the lockdown period. Now, given what we've been discussing, is this potentially some good news for us? It is potentially some good news for us. I mean, Now Teach is a very small recruiter of teachers. It's a almost a sort of startup charity. So 70% increase is obviously a good thing, but it's a 70% increase over a small base. But we would expect this to be reflected across you know, the rest of initial teacher training more generally. And indeed, Jack Worth from the National Foundation for Educational Research has a blog showing that you know, across the piece, recruitment to initial teacher training is around about two thirds higher than we would expect it to be at this time of year. On the other hand, there are some concerns over the capacity of schools to host trainees on their placements during initial teacher training. You know, almost all teacher training routes, there are periods in which the trainee has to spend time in a school, often more than one school, kind of getting some practical experience. And that depends on schools having the capacity, bandwidth, confidence to host that trainee in one of their classrooms. And there's some anecdotal evidence, definitely only anecdotal at this stage, that some schools are saying, you know, we've got far too much on our hands already next year. And we just don't have the, uh, you know, we don't have the capacity to host one of these trainees. So I think the picture is of clearly more people coming into the training pipeline at one end, but a query about whether the pipeline might be partially blocked due to, you know, for the same reasons because of COVID-19. 
So just uh, finally then, Sam, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, we're pretty sure he's a regular listener to the podcast. Of course. Hi, Gavin. (laughs) What would be your message to him then for tackling recruitment and retention as we attempt to get back to some semblance of normality? What do you think are the one or two key things that policymakers should be focusing on? Yeah, well, not all of these issues are policy issues. Some of them are, for sure. I talked quite a bit about pay at the start. That is very much a policy issue. You know, schools cannot pay teachers more than they have the budget to do. And starting salaries for teachers or the kind of guidance for a starting salary is still set centrally. So the government have already announced that they plan to increase teachers starting salaries from, well, up to 30,000, which is a sizable increase over the current starting salary, which I think is around 26,000 from memory, varies whether you're in London or not. But, you know, that will go a long way to helping teaching be more competitive in terms of recruitment. Then we've got the issue of uh, what's it like to be a teacher once you get there? And how can we get rid of some of these hindrance demands, kind of pointless tasks that make it hard for teachers to do the things that made them go into the profession in the first place, you know, helping pupils learn. And some of that stuff is kind of harder to see how government deals with that. A lot of that stuff is actually, you know, in the gift of school leaders. The example we've been using throughout in terms of putting pointless data in spreadsheet and trying to report on pupil progress in such minute detail that it's kind of you know, impossible in principle to do that anyway. Well, this is in the gift of head teachers. Of course, head teachers are also operating within the environment of accountability, and Ofsted have now said they won't look at schools' internal assessment data because, um, you know, quite rightly, they think a lot of it's not a very valid measurement of pupil learning. So it's important that schools capitalise on the opportunity to get rid of some of that old stuff that may have been necessary under a previous Ofsted regime, but no longer is. And it's also important that we don't just replace that stuff with new workload, which isn't contributing to helping pupils learn. There's a real kind of onus on leaders to be judicious about what they ask teachers to do. And that is very, very hard when you're under pressure from the accountability system. If we all knew what worked in education, these problems would be, you know, they wouldn't be problems in the first place. And that leads to people reaching for this, that, and every other solution that's available in order to try and prove a school's results. But we've got to try and resist the temptation to do that and be judicious in only asking teachers to do productive things. So there could be something there in empowering school leaders rather than every single teacher. We can reach the teachers through the leaders. Yes, there's also something about the way we train, uh, you know, our next generation of leaders. The UK, I don't think we appreciate this, but, or England in particular, has one of the most comprehensive school leadership training systems anywhere in the world in terms of, you know, MPQH and the kind of precursor, National Professional Qualification Middle Leadership and so on. We have a lot of influence over leaders through these qualifications and we should be using it to make sure that the next generation of leaders is more assessment on uh, more uh, literate on issues around assessment for example and aren't going out there creating sort of reams of junk data in an attempt to kind of measure things that cannot be measured that's really interesting sam thanks so much it's been great to talk with you it's such a massive and massively important issue at the best of times but perhaps more so even now given the the pandemic and I'm sure you'll be kept very busy with the research 
on teacher supply for some time to come. Really interesting. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's been great fun. You can follow Sam on Twitter, Dr. Sam Sims, and you can learn more about his research and the work of the IOE Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities via the links in the show notes. Do have a look for more episodes of Research for the Real World and other IOE podcasts by searching for IOE podcasts from wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll find more episodes uh, of Research for the Real World from our first two seasons, along with our playlist of music, which has been chosen by our guests and the podcast team. That is all on our UCL webpage. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Rob Webster. Goodbye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 